I'm Peter Kadzis. Welcome to The Scrum. I'm filling in for Adam Riley, our regular host, who is away on assignment. And we have two guests today, Dan Kennedy, a regular contributor to WGBH News, and attorney Javi Silverglade, who is also a GBH contributor. And today we're going to talk about civil liberties. Specifically, we're going to consider the 20. 20- 18 New England Muzzle Awards, which are a special set of awards that Dan Kennedy has been putting together for 21 years that spotlight those people who diminish free speech. Dan, welcome. Thank you, Peter. Good to be here. Javi, welcome again. Good to be back. Dan, why don't you give us a little background about the, the muzzles? Well, the first Muzzle Awards appeared in the Boston Phoenix and the other Phoenix newspapers in 1998. And uh, what we do is every 4th of July or thereabouts, uh, we try to single out 10 outrages against uh, free speech and civil liberties in New England. And uh, it's sad to say uh, we've never had any problem filling up those uh, 10 slots. No, we haven't. And my experience working with both of you and editing me, sometimes, some years, we've had massive lists that we had trouble paring down. I track them throughout the year, and Peter, as you know, sometimes if you say, well, this one leaves me a little cold, I'll say, well, I've got six more to look at. (laughs) In Javi, your contribution, you pay special attention to free speech outrages on New England campuses. Right, and the places where they're supposed to be the most free speech, which frequently have the least. I find the irony just too delicious. Well, let's dive in. Um, Your number one muzzle, Boston Police Commissioner Bill Evans. Now, a lot of people might be surprised at that, but there's a big but here. There is a big but here, and this isn't his first muzzle award, by the way. I think being commissioner of the Boston Police Department kind of earns you sort of a muzzle every year anyway, just because of the nature of the job. Uh, Last August, as you remember, there was a uh, small group of right-wing activists who wanted to have what they were calling a free speech rally on the Boston Common. And there had been a few of these, and they really had been very small affairs that didn't amount to a whole lot. But the one in August ended up taking place a week after uh, the terrible situation in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, where a group of white supremacists came out and protested, and, and a young woman was killed. And then to compound things, uh, President Trump came out and said there were many fine people on both sides, meaning the protesters and the white supremacists. So well, let, let me passions were at a boil. Passions were at a boil, but where does Bill Evans come into the story? Well, the problem is this. The press and the public were not able to get anywhere near the Parkman bandstand where the right-wing speakers were were doing their thing. And they had come with very inadequate sound amplification material. And um, Evans ended up saying, it's really on them. If nobody could hear them, that's really their fault. And I think that's fine as far as it goes. But then he added, uh, I I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but uh, why don't you read it, Peter? It's right in front of you. We have a job to do. We did a great job. And I'm not going to listen to people who come in here and want to talk about hate. And you know what? If they didn't get in, that's a good thing, because their message isn't what we want to hear. Bingo. That's what won him the Muzzle Award. 
And uh, unfortunately, it played right into this sense that some people had that Commissioner Evans and the Boston police really didn't want these uh, activist message to get out. So by putting that into words, uh, I think it really played into some of the uh, concerns that people had about what some of the rules the police had put in place were really all about. And as a result, a number of civil liberties organizations, including the Society of Professional Journalists, the ACLU, uh, et cetera, uh, put out a statement saying the next time something like this happens, we strongly urge that this that that steps be taken so that the speaker's message can be heard. Yeah, Harvey. I you see, rem- once you have the police keeping the listeners at a far distance from the speakers, then all of a sudden the lack of any amplification equipment becomes crucial because that means you got speakers speaking and nobody's hearing them, and that was, I think, the core of the problem. Well. If my memory serves me correctly, I had the distinct impression there was a conspiracy afoot to make sure that the, these, I thought, rather pathetic right-wingers could not be heard. Uh, it wasn't exactly a conspiracy. It was a tactic. I mean, that's how the police would look at it. If they could keep the listeners and the speakers apart, not only was there a reduced chance of fisticuffs, but the listeners would not be hearing what the speakers are saying, and that really neutralizes the situation. So the police, police naturally look at a situation and say, how, we, how am I going to keep the peace? Other people look at it and say, how are we going to protect free speech? Evans was acting more like a cop than he was a civic officer. Well, having been there, I arrived on the Boston Common oh, a good four or five hours before the scheduled event was to begin. And there was already a sizable crowd there. And I I must say that I I thought that the Boston police on the whole did a a terrific job of policing the crowd. There was an incredible potential for real violence, for the right-wingers to be attacked and pulled to pieces by some people there. I agree with you completely. I mean, I think the police had a very difficult job that day. Uh, I just wish that Commissioner Evans had not gone so far as to say, we're glad that the speakers couldn't be heard. But, Harvey, what happens or what should happen when when you have a situation where there is a, a real, a reasonable to a real potential for physical clash and violence? How was that weighed against the rights of a a group to be heard. Well, the way lawyers and judges put it quite succinctly is that the First Amendment is not a suicide pact. So nobody, including I'm a I'm a pretty absolute First Amendment supporter. The most absolute I know. (laughs) Even I agree that when you're on the verge of real violence, that it's time to shut everybody up and disperse the crowd. I am not unreasonable. The Supreme Court is unreasonable. The most dedicated free speech advocates would not be in favor of, uh, of a riot. So I am looking at it, I think, from a practical point of view. And I, I, my bottom line is that uh, Evans and the police should have allowed the listeners to be close enough to the speakers to hear what they had to say because of the absence, and this was the speaker's fault, they didn't have adequate amplification 
equipment. It was one of those situations where a little bit, you could say, a pox on both their houses. Both sides contributed to the situation. Okay. Dan, people shouldn't be surprised that Donald Trump makes it onto the muzzles this year. But this isn't a national award. This is an award or anti-award for bad behavior in New England. How did Donald Trump manage to offend you here in your own backyard? This particular muzzle award uh, came because of a prank that the uh, kids at the Harvard Lampoon pulled. Uh, They borrowed a a chair from the Harvard Crimson known as the President's Chair. You mean they stole. By borrowed, (laughs) I mean stole, yes. And uh, they called the Trump campaign and said, we're from the Harvard Crimson, and we're going to endorse you for president. Can we come down and pose for a picture? And the campaign said, this is something we'd be very interested in. Please do. So they go to New York. They lug the chair up into uh, then-candidate Trump's office, and uh, he sits in the chair. They're all gathered around. Everybody's got the characteristic thumbs up. They take a picture. So they head back to Cambridge, and they saying, this is just a great trick. Somehow, the Trump campaign figured out that they had been punked, and Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's personal lawyer, since indicted, gets on the phone to one of the uh, Harvard Lampoon kids and threatens him with expulsion. And he is apparently very intimidating. He's saying, I'm going to find out everything about you. I'm going to get you expelled. I want you to send me your Harvard student ID. Uh, The kid later said he was so terrified that he sent him his ID. He was afraid that Cohen was going to show up at Harvard looking for... uh, looking for violence if he didn't do that. The idea of a presidential candidate getting so upset about this prank that he would sick his personal lawyer on the kids who perpetrated it is just absolutely beyond belief. And of course, it was designed to stop these kids from speaking out and saying what they had done. Uh, fortunately, they went ahead and did it anyway. The the Harvard Crimson, uh, I guess they got their chair back because they did a nice story on it and ran the picture. Well, there is, for those listeners who may not be aware, a longtime rivalry between the, the Daily Crimson newspaper and the Harvard Lampoon, which the Crimson calls a uh, club which occasionally puts out a newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> um, Harvey, you're a Canterbridgean of longtime standing. Much ado about nothing, or did President Trump overreact, or candidate Trump at the time? Well, there's no question in my mind that this was a huge overreaction, but this is a very thin-skinned guy, remember. And his lawyer, then lawyer, who's soon to be a witness against him, I predict, was uh, a, a quite famous bully, and he showed his bullying in this incident. I think that the lawyer really... Uh, should have tried to calm his own client down (laughs) instead of allowing himself to be manipulated into uh, this kind of a bullying situation. But perhaps uh, finding Donald Trump on the muzzle list, um, as you said, shouldn't be a surprise because he's appeared here before. But um, ex-President Barack Obama 
What did he do? Well, I mean, he may be the great liberal icon, but at the same time, he's never been a particular friend of the First Amendment. That's an understatement. Uh, that, yes, that is an understatement. Now, what earned former President Obama a muzzle award is just pure absurdity. He was coming to a conference on sports statistics that is sponsored by MIT's Sloan School. It happens every year. And all of a sudden, an advisory goes out to the press saying that President Obama's appearance on this panel will be completely off the record. No social media, there'll be no reporting on it. Anybody who violates this, blah, 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 will be kicked out of the conference. It was ridiculous. Now, I did a little bit of reporting uh, to try to find out where this directive came from. And uh, the MIT people just recycled their statement and didn't really answer the question. Uh, but it seems pretty clear that it either came from uh, President Obama or the staff around him. And so he wins a muzzle award. And of course, when you make a when you make an absurd rule like this and then go speak to 3,500 people, uh, guess what happens? His <laughs> remarks leaked immediately. Yeah. Why did he appear at that program, by the way? you have any theory? He loves sports. He absolutely loves sports. And in fact, one of the parts of his talk that Reason.com reported on was just how much he loves basketball. I mean, he was he was talking about basketball quite a bit. I think probably somebody just said, let's see if... President Obama will come, and to their, probably to their shock and amazement, he said yes. You know, I, I don't want to steal too much of the magic from um, the 2018 muzzles, and I, I really urge people to go to wgbhnews.org and, and give them a thorough read. But, you know, before we move on to the campus muzzles, um, I'd like both of you to sort of give me a snapshot of what you feel the state of civil liberties, of free speech, is here in the United States. My snap assessment is that, I don't know, in my adult life, I can't remember a period where I have a sense that other adults watch what they say as carefully as they do right now. Um, we're mighty touchy these days. How, how does that spill over into the marketplace of ideas? Well, you know, there is a gap between what's going on in society and what may be going on in the courts. But, in fact, there has always been a very strong contingent of people who uh, want to tell other people to shut up and do tell other people to shut up. People in the workplace, for example, are really under the gun because they have very limited free speech rights. And um, you, can, uh, you can be fired uh, for infelicitous speech if, if you're in private industry, um, and you don't have very much uh, recourse. So, in fact, it's, there's always a risk that saying something can get you in trouble. And right now, uh, because there is so much bad blood within the society and groups are so badly divided, uh, the threats are particularly virulent. So we're in a period right now where, despite the Supreme Court's near-absolute uh, affirmance of the First Amendment, people are more afraid than ever to say something. Dan, what's your social experience and your 
if you feel comfortable talking about it, your professional experience in higher education. I don't think any of us feel that we've ever had a problem uh, talking with and providing a forum for uh, conservative students, even though most students tend to be liberal. Uh, but the rise of Donald Trump has really kind of changed that. And uh, it's very difficult to have that conversation uh, between liberals and conservatives that used to take place because uh, President Trump, frankly, represents such a threat to many of our students, our international students, our uh, LGBT uh, students. And, uh, and so that changes the equation a little bit. Uh, plus, you have the... Ch changes the equation how? It's hard to open up a space for the pro-Trump point of view when he is directly threatening the lives of so many of our students. And then you add to that the complication that uh, so many principled conservatives are as opposed to President Trump as liberals tend to be. Uh, I'll, I'll throw a name out there. I've often had uh, Jeff Jacoby, the conservative columnist for the Boston Globe, come in and uh, talk about liberal media bias. And, you know, we disagree and we debated a little bit and then uh, we go along our way. Uh, well, the last time I brought Jeff in to talk to my students, he detests President Trump as much as anybody. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's actually difficult to get that pro-Trump point of view and then you ask yourself, well, I, oh, am I opening up myself up to the criticism that I'm not carving out that space? It's, it's a dilemma. It really is. Javi, any thoughts? Well, the campuses have been, up until very recently, uh, have been pretty accommodating because the notion of the campus as a forum for all points of view has been broadly accepted in the academic world. But what's happened now is the virus that's affected the body politic out there has seeped into the campuses. And there's, a, there's all of a sudden a lot of bad blood on campuses that there wasn't before. I'm, I'm astonished by it. We are living in very contentious times, and uh, who knows how long it will last. So people who are tolerant whether they're conservatives or liberals, have a particular obligation, I think, to make, it make that tolerance clear and to talk about it and to wonder out loud about why it's in a diminishing supply. Well, let, let's, let's use that to segue onto um, the uh, muzzle awards you've awarded on New England campuses. Now, you gave a joint award to the University of Massachusetts at Boston in Tufts University for their um, position on something called the Confucius Institute. Could you explain that to us? Well, the Confucius Institutes are found on a uh, rather large number of American campuses, more than 100 at last count. <clears throat> they are funded by the and staffed by the People's Republic of China under the category of cross cultural exchange. And there is a lot of control from the funders, from the people on top. Is that the Chinese government? Yes, the Chinese government. And there is actually a deeper problem that are reflected by the Confucius Institute phenomenon. And that is 
American colleges and universities are more strapped for money now than any time in my lifetime. And I've, I've been a lawyer for 51 years. I've been around for a while. They're cash strapped, and they will take money that comes with certain conditions and certain controls or even certain unstated expectations. So what, what exactly has UMass Boston and Tufts University done? Because what they, they have done is, what they have not done is talk about human rights issues. And you have to assume, given the fact that human rights issues are really on the forefront of the headlines today, you have to wonder why. And there is a suspicion that the money came with conditions, even if they're unspoken, and that the universities cool their jets with regard to what the Confucius Institutes will say, will study, will do. Um, I should also point out, by the way, that uh, one of my gripes is that colleges have been adding administrators at such a rapid pace that no wonder they have financial difficulties. And, um, of course, UMass has a problem uh, that uh, Tufts does not. UMass is expected to hire a certain number of former members of the legislature, <laughs> uh, family members of politicians. So they have a particular reason to be hiring more administrators than they need. Well, let me draw the line there. That's a long way from Beijing, although it's very interesting. The muzzle awarded to uh, Dan's employer, Northeastern University. You see, this is why I don't do the campus muzzle award. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's called the conflict of interest. Yeah. Yes. Um, let's just say that if the muzzle for the Confucius Institutes has a uh, sort of philosophical tinge to it, um, the muzzle awarded to Northeastern seems like sort of a, a classic free speech situation. Well, it is because of, you know, Barry uh, Bluestone, very prominent economics uh, uh, professor uh, at, at Northeastern, he, um, he made national headlines last February when he rather foolishly uh, said uh, something to the effect that he wouldn't mind seeing the President Trump dead. He apologized uh, for that. Nonetheless, uh, he was, of course, on the faculty in Northeastern, was uh, quite upset about it. They got their PR people uh, on it right away. The problem, in my view was that Northeastern cut the bluestone words uh, from their own website. Instead of owning up to it, after all, he wasn't really threatening the president. He was uh, making a wisecrack. He was making a wisecrack. But the fact that instead of owning up to it, uh, the first instinct of the university administration was to simply censor it, to cut it out. Uh, it's a very bad way of reacting to crises because they scrubbed the video from YouTube. I mean, they really went out of their way before they finally realized, in this country, you really can't scrub too well because it will get out, and then your scrubbing will make everything twice as bad. What was Bluestone, what was Barry's own reaction to their scrubbing of the video? He was upset about it. And I think he realized that... Uh, having said something foolish, 
Uh, it was not going to be scrubbed from memory. It was not going to be scrubbed from the public sphere. It looked bad for him and for the university. And I also think most people react. They said, well, you know, he said something he shouldn't. He took it back. That was the intelligent thing to do. You know, after all, think about it. Everybody listening can think back and say, hmm, this let, let, very let, similar thing happened Let me to ask me. you both. The rise of the Internet or the, the dominance of digital communication how has that changed our perception of free speech? What do you think, Dan? You know, it's interesting. I mean, last year when we did the Muzzle Awards, there was uh, a, a muzzle handed out to YouTube and another handed out to Instagram. So it's very definitely uh, on Good point. on the horizon. It's, it just didn't come up as a Muzzle Award this year. I think one of the problems that we see today is that people will say something intemperate on Facebook or Twitter, usually Twitter, because even though Twitter, even though Twitter isn't as important as Facebook, it's more open than Facebook. And um, it might be something that the person who said it would have liked to take back. And it just unleashes this horde and, and this horrendous um, counterattack that will go on for days. And it really does lead, I think, to people thinking two or three times before they they uh, give voice to what uh, is rattling around inside their head. Now, a lot of times, maybe, it's not bad to t think two or three times before you say this incredibly stupid thing. But at the same time, it's, it does have a chilling effect on, on what we might want to say. See, my own theory is that the, the rise of digital culture has made it so easy for so many of us to say so much all the time, and we don't all have that much that's worth saying. That's what people keep telling me, and you know they're right. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's incredibly easy to get a message to hundreds of thousands of millions of people. Witness President Donald Trump, his ability to communicate directly to the world in a matter of seconds, misspellings and all, um, <laughs> has redefined the presidency. It really has. But on the other hand, uh, communications have also become much easier for people without the, uh, the, the enormous power and without the enormous facilities available to the president of the United States. So a lot of voices get magnified. Uh, as you know, it was not too long ago, Peter, whereas if you said something that wasn't reported in a print newspaper, it's as if you didn't say it. Correct. You don't have that situation anymore. Uh, there's an ocean of these statements out there, uh, not all of which were meant, and um, many of which a person would pull back if they could, but guess what? They can't. Well, that seems like a natural place for us to wrap up. Um, I want to thank our guest, Dan Kennedy, uh, a WGBH News contributor and associate professor yes. at Northeastern University of Journalism. Uh, Javi Silverglade, a distinguished lawyer, another longtime contributor to WGBH. And also both my former colleagues from the late, great Boston Phoenix. So thank you very much for coming, and we'll do this again, I hope, next year for the 22nd Muzzle Awards. You think there'll be suppression of speech in the next 12 months, really? I've uh, already got one on my list. Come on. <laughs> what is it? Uh, the 
roadblock that ICE set up on I-95 in Maine last week. Uh, I, I thought of rolling it into the introduction of this year's Muzzle Awards, but I said, nah, let's see what develops. It might be a full muzzle next I, year. I'll tell you a prediction, and I, I, I won't go into it. I, I think ICE might be good for more than one next year. Anyway, again, thank you for listening to The Scrum. Uh, we are a production of WGBH News. Um, thank you, and we'll be back. We'll be back.